Six months after Russia's attack on Ukraine, the country celebrated its Independence Day on August 24th. The Russians seemed to have expected that their conquest of Ukraine would be over quickly after a shock and awe style assault, but instead the Ukrainians have held out unexpectedly against Russian power. The Russian war of aggression against Ukraine has now lasted over six months, with many thousands of people, soldiers and civilians dead on both sides of the conflict millions displaced, and no end in sight. What can we expect from the Russia-Ukraine conflict? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Our guest this week is Roman Popadiuk. He currently serves as president of the Diplomacy Center Foundation, a nonprofit engaged in a public-private partnership with the U.S. Department of State in building an American diplomacy museum at the State Department. He's a retired member of the Career Senior Foreign Service, most notably serving as the first U.S. ambassador to Ukraine in 1992-93, and as deputy assistant to the president and deputy press secretary for foreign affairs under Presidents George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan. He also served as the executive director of the George Bush Presidential Library Foundation at Texas A&M University and as chairman of the board of directors of the World Affairs Councils of America. He's the author of The Leadership of George Bush and a co-author of Privileged and Confidential, The Secret History of the President's Intelligence Advisory Board. He's a four-time graduate of the City University of New York with a BA from Hunter College, two master's degrees, and a PhD from the Graduate Center here at CUNY. Welcome to International Horizons, uh, Ambassador Papaduke. John, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here with you today. Nice to have you. And and with all that CUNY background, we couldn't resist. (laughs) Okay. So first, maybe a little bit about your background. I mean, I understand your family immigrated to New York from Ukraine in the 1950s. And how has that experience, you know, affected your career? Sure. I, I was born in 1950 and my family came to the United States in that year. Um, my, uh, along with myself, obviously, and my older sister, we originally settled for a few months in Iowa. We had a family that uh, sponsored us into the United States that was uh, in Iowa on a farm. Uh, after a few months there, we then uh, came to New York City, and I actually grew up in uh, Brooklyn, New York, so I spent a good part of my uh, life in Brooklyn, New York, and still have a lot of affinity for New York City and enjoy the city anytime I go to visit there. Uh, in terms of that the background, you know, my parents are, were, you know, they passed, uh, uh, God rest their souls, but uh, they are, uh, were Ukrainian, obviously, uh, Ukrainian background. I was raised with Ukrainian background. And um, at home, I spoke Ukrainian as a youngster. And I think there were two influences that uh, came to bear on my uh, eventual career path. The first was obviously being an immigrant and uh, uh, bring, being brought up in the culture and the language of my parents. Uh, I had an affinity for cultural diversity and learning about other 
systems, other uh, politi political systems, other cultures, etc. But at this time, discussing politics and in particular international politics at the dinner table, whenever we had an, an occasion to do so. And obviously in that context, uh, a lot of the focus was on Ukraine, the situation in Ukraine then during the Soviet period. So I grew up uh, with a combination of uh, a broader outlook in terms of pointing me toward a direction of uh, international affairs as a career path. Understood. Makes a lot of sense, obviously. So, and that launched you on a diplomatic career and, um, you know, leading to you being present really at the highest levels of U.S. foreign policy at the time of the breakup of the Soviet Union and the, soon thereafter the time of uh, Ukraine's independence. So, uh, you know, how do I mean, we're obviously eventually going to be talking about the war. Uh, so maybe you could talk about how you understand, you know, that period, the period of the early 90s and, you know, the way it shaped how things have gotten to their current past, so to speak. Sure. Uh, there, are, there are two things that I would point to, uh, John. One goes back to the original question you posed to me in terms of my uh, background. As I mentioned, you know, my parents and I and my older sister came to the States and I have a younger sister who was born in the States. And as we used to, we'd like to say she was the first really American citizen. Having been right. born here. Uh, that background, as I mentioned to you, kind of focused me on that part of the world. And a lot of my studies were taken up in that. So I, had a, I thought I had a pretty good understanding of that situation. In terms of what actually transpired in, uh, as a result of my presence in uh, the Reagan and Bush administrations, during those days at the White House, I saw a lot that was developing. And I think what, while we fully realized that the Soviet Union was falling apart during those days in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, we also had a number of concerns, I think. And here I would point to the fact that uh, the Soviet Union was a nuclear power or superpower, and you had to be very careful in terms of how you dealt directly on these issues, particularly when it was going through a major transformation internally in its political situation. Uh, the other thing that people tend to forget is that there was a need to continue working with the Soviet Union, even as it was literally falling apart. Uh, and so one of the things I would point to is, of course, we needed to work with them in terms of the Kuwait war, uh, when uh, you know Saddam Hussein attacked in the United States got involved to expel him from Kuwait. So we needed their cooperation, which was forthcoming in the UN. Uh, and uh, that was very helpful for the policy to move forward. But at the same time, uh, specifically uh, as regards to the Soviet Union and it's falling apart, um, we realized that um, uh, we had to tread carefully, not to, as President Bush uh, liked to say, not to stick a finger in Gorbachev's eye we saw the place falling apart, but we had to deal with it in a way that it would have its own pace and not have a major ramifications, even either bilaterally or for the region. And so what we basically did is develop a twofold policy. Uh, we, uh, we focused on working with the center, mainly Moscow, but at the same time, we started extending our interest to the uh, republics. And our policy uh, was geared toward having the republics work out their relationship with the center. We didn't want to be seen as forcing some kind of a policy choice on the republics. So 
we, well, we worked with the center, namely Moscow, at the same time we started working with the individual republics, but that relationship between the republics and the center was something they had to work out on their own. But we all saw that the place was basically falling apart and moving toward a new kind of situation. What it would be and at what, at what time it would actually fall apart was anybody's guess. You know, as you look back in history, I think President Bush really played it uh, very um, smartly. Uh, he worked with Gorbachev, we worked with the Soviet Union. At the same time, we worked with the republics. And as you can see, the Soviet Union uh, passed into history uh, peacefully. Uh, there was really no bloodshed. Obviously, a few uh, deaths in the Baltics during the course of this process, but no major, major, you know, uh, uh, bloodshed conflict or anything of that nature. And I think that's a credit to uh, not only President Bush's leadership, but the leadership of all the Western states uh, in terms of dealing with this uh, historic transition. Uh, toward um, a greater uh, toward freedom for the individual republics of the former Soviet Union. Right, and just I think a correction. You just said that the Baltics. There were some deaths in the Baltics. I think you meant the Balkans. No, no, the Baltics. Uh, they, the they Baltics. Were, they, when they were declaring independence and everything, uh, there were. I think there might have been a few deaths there. Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, obviously, I think of. Uh, you know, the collapse of Yugoslavia, which... Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that goes without another saying. Another part you know, that's, of this that's process. A whole, that's a whole different... Yeah, yes. that's a whole different... I think there were a, a few, uh, uh, you know, some minor skirmishes, conflicts. I don't know what kind of word we want to put on it. But I, if I remember correctly, there were a few uh, deaths. I'm sure one of your... Uh, one of your listeners will correct the record. Yes, yes, yes. That's not a problem. Yeah. Both of us seem to be a little foggy. On well, yeah, this, this is what happens when you try to recall you know, something for 30, 40 years. Ago. Yeah, exactly. No kidding. So um, you mentioned nuclear weapons, which obviously play a significant role in, in you know, the security situation in the region that we're talking about. And I understand you helped to negotiate the Budapest Memorandum, which guaranteed Ukraine's security in exchange for turning over nuclear weapons stationed on its soil back to, to Russia. So could you talk about, you know, the significance of that now and how you look, about, look back on that in retrospect? Sure, that's a very good question, John, and very pertinent one given the situation between Ukraine and Russia right now. Uh, for your listeners, you know, the Budapest Memorandum, I started uh, negotiating that with the uh, Ukrainians to the end of 1992. It was eventually signed in 1994. And the whole purpose of this was to have Ukraine move toward a non-nuclear status. As you recall, when the Soviet Union fell apart, Ukraine inherited, inherited a considerable number of uh, missiles and tactical nuclear weapons, uh, of which, which were based in Ukraine, but they did not have operational control of it. So that's a whole different story. But we wanted to make sure those weapons were safely taken care of and there will be no spread of nuclear weapons uh, throughout uh, uh, the world as uh, you know people using that as an example for acquiring nuclear weapons so there was an incentive uh, for the uh, for the united states to get uh, this nuclear weapons issue uh, settled so uh, one of the things that the ukrainians obviously were very concerned about is given the historic relationship between ukraine and russia and you see the war now um, the Ukrainians were very insistent on getting some kind of security guarantees in return for giving up the nuclear weapons. 
uh, you know, everyone was reluctant to give a guarantee because that's basically a binding treaty, kind of like along the NATO Article 5 um, uh, lines. So what we finally settled with the Ukrainians is we settled upon giving them what are called security assurances. And uh, these assurances were given by the United Kingdom, by Britain, Russia, and, and the United States. China and France eventually joined this agreement also, although they modified some of the language in it. But anyway, basically what it committed the signatories, Ukraine, Russia, here, Ukraine, I mean, Russia, uh, the, uh, Britain and the United States was to um, respect the territorial integrity of Ukraine and not to use, uh, you know, threats against Ukraine uh, or economic coercion uh, in the event of uh, any kind of difficulties uh, regarding the states it would go to the security council i'm kind of summarizing so it gave that but the main thing it was an assurance it wasn't a guarantee uh on the basis of that ukraine eventually did give up its nuclear weapons as well as other issues that had to be settled in terms of for example getting compensated for the highly enriched uranium that was in the warheads of the of the weapons so Ukraine eventually um, signed the Budapest Memorandum, uh, gave up its nuclear weapons. And unfortunately, the memorandum came to be challenged in two regards. First, in 2014, when Russia took, took um, uh, eastern parts of eastern Ukraine, as well as Crimea and ex-Crimea. And then, of course, uh, earlier this year, in February, when Russia actually invaded Ukraine all out in an effort to crush the country, and either, in neither situation did the Budapest Memorandum really come into play. Uh, and unfortunately, it's one of those historic situations where the intentions were very good and the language was very strong, but uh, you know, Russia would not abide by that language in it, where unfortunately there was nothing that the United States could do or Britain or you know, anyone else could do to enforce it because it was basically an issue that you brought to the Security Council and, at that stage, you know, vetoes come into play and politics uh, uh, and come into play. And uh, unfortunately, it's, it was a well-intentioned, I would say, agreement. Unfortunately, it fell short of actual implementation. Unfortunately. Right. And now we're in a hot war situation and uh, a situation that seems increasingly, from my perspective, uh, you know, to portend a long slog. I mean, uh, so I'm very interested in kind of getting your assessment. I mean, some people think that the Russians will ramp up their uh, attacks and their, and Putin's calling up more soldiers and that sort of thing. And of course, others have seen the heroic, you know, response of the Ukrainian population and uh military successes in various places and a lot of deaths on the russian side but um you know i, I well i'm curious you know what your assessment is it seems to me that it increasingly looks like you know a stalemate that's going to drag on for a long time i mean i heard a uh discussion yesterday of syria which you know, I mean, we're not in the Syria neighborhood yet, but uh, by a long stretch, of course, but that kind of possibility seems so, you know, depressing to contemplate. So anyway, I'm curious, you know, how you assess the sure. situation. Sure. Uh, very good question. I would agree with you in your term of calling it a stalemate almost to a certain extent. I'll get back to that. I'm a little bit more open-minded in terms of the, um, time frame of this. I don't think this is a, a slugfest that can go on 
for a long time. And I'll get back to that. Let me, let me just start off by saying that uh, one of the biggest surprises of this conflict is the resistance of the Ukrainians and the resolve of the Ukrainians. No one expected that Ukraine would be able to uh, stave off the Russian attack as well as it has. And uh, that's unfortunate uh, that the West didn't realize this. There were two things that developed in Ukraine over the many years that really have given that, that resolve outside the historical desire for independence and freedom. Um, Ukrainians have a whole new generation of people that have arisen after independence and they identify totally with, uh, with Ukraine. And so their morale was very high to preserve their identity in the country. And of course they're under attack. So their, mor their morale is very, very high. The other thing is something that I think the West and the Russians in particular didn't realize while the Ukrainian military was fairly weak and kind of, you know, not well-structured prior to 2014. After the Russians invaded Eastern Ukraine and took an ex-Crimea back in 2014, the Ukrainians really reorganized their military and they have a fairly strong military. And people forget that they have a core group of people that used to rotate or serve in various peacekeeping roles outside the country. So they have experience, combat experience. So the combination of morale and the restructured military, uh, and restructured, I mean, in the sense they got a lot of training from uh, Western countries. So they're well, they were well-trained in terms of how to conduct conf conflicts of this nature, I would say, uh, really surprised the Russians. And I would say, you know, there have been three conflicts here, John, basically. One was the Kiev, the original invasion, where they thought the, the Russians thought they could just walk in and take over Kiev and take over the country. The Ukrainians won that war, basically. They pushed back that convoy, they held the city, and you can see every day almost Zelensky, President Zelensky's on YouTube or some kind of video is sending messages out. The second conflict is after the Russians got stopped in Kiev, they moved toward Eastern Ukraine, Donetsk, and started pushing forward there. And they made some progress there, quite frankly. But right there, that's there seems to be a kind of a standstill at this stage of the game. And the third front basically is the one in southern Ukraine, a little north of Crimea in Kherson, the city that they're fighting over right now, where the Ukrainians seem to be making some inroads to be to pushing the, the Russians back. Now, to make a long story short, given the morale, given the strength of the Ukrainian military, can the Ukrainians defeat the Russians? No, I don't think so in a military conflict. I don't think they can defeat them. The manpower and equipment that the Russians have is way too much to be able to be constantly fighting. But they have been able to fight them to a standstill, basically. And I think what you're going to see is basically a continuation of this kind of standstill, kind of what I like to refer to as a frozen conflict, expanded frozen conflict at this stage of the game. I think the determining factor of which side starts giving into possible peace negotiations is going to be the cost-benefit analysis. And I think this falls mostly on the Russian side. The Ukrainians will continue to fight, and they've made that clear because they're fighting for their territory. For the Russians, the cost-benefit analysis falls into two categories. First, in terms of personnel and material, they're losing a lot of material. They're also losing a lot of uh, personnel. Uh, some estimates by the Ukrainians are that up to 45,000 Russian soldiers have been killed or wounded. That's considerable number of forces. And Putin, of course, is you know, faced with the 
option do you continue with what you have in hand or do you start mobilizing forces and the mobilization when he himself has not declared this a war uh, puts him in a political bind back home so he's going to be limited in that sense and he's already starting to run out of a lot of you know highly technical missiles so that's one cost benefit for him the other one is going to be if the ukrainians are able to push back a little bit or hold the line you're in a slugfest and you're not able to give up any territory. But if the Russians feel that uh, they're going to be losing territory or they can't move territory further, eat further west, take more territory, there's a chance that they will uh, op open the door to negotiations. In other words, if the Russians are starting to lose territory or they can't gain any more territory, and at the same time, obviously, they're losing personnel and material, they will look for a way to bring the conflict to an end and freeze it in place. Now, that's not a benefit to either side. It's more of a benefit to, uh, to the Russians, though, for the simple reason the Russians will hold on to more territory. Right now, the Russians have about 20% of Ukraine's territory. Yeah, so that's a sort of a chunk of real estate that they're holding on to. At this, um, so that's that's something that they will be uh, holding on to. And I'm assuming they obviously would like to continue to hold on to. So basically what I would see in this current situation is a frozen conflict along the lines of a Minsk three, for lack of a better terminology, where the, where the people will try to negotiate, but the negotiations will basically be for ceasefire lines, return of um, uh, prisoners of war, uh, humanitarian corridors, I think it'll be along those lines and the seriousness of any kind of negotiation for territory is not going to be there. The Ukrainians will want territory. The Russians will not want to give the territory back and it will, and will be stuck in this kind of frozen conflict, which then allows the Russians to regroup and possibly continue the conflict at some later date. That's unfortunate. I'm sorry. That's a little bit of a longer answer, but I'd be more happy to get into a little bit more specifics if you want to continue this part of the conversation. Well, I guess, I mean, since that's this is, of course, all speculation sure. about where things are going to go. But to, to get back maybe to the roots of the conflict, I mean, obviously, many people regarded this as a matter of Russia's insistence that it was being encroached upon by NATO and that Ukraine was going to join the NATO team and, and further, you know, ham in the Russian security kind of situation. Situation. And so uh, one of the things, I guess, that puzzles me is the extent to which, uh, you know, the, the war has become a kind of proxy war between the United States and Russia. Uh, but it seems as if implicitly certain lines have been drawn that the Russians will not, you know, uh, even by mistake or by supposed mistake, you know, drop a missile in Poland or other where, elsewhere in NATO territory. Uh, of course, already there's, you know, in Scandinavia, the Baltics, there's moves towards, uh, you know, incorporating more countries into NATO as a result of this conflict. Um, but the Russians have sort of said, well, we're going to let the Americans supply the Ukrainians and, um, you know, they're doing they do the fighting, but the United States and Europe, to a lesser extent, um, you know, supply the ammunition. And so it's it seems like it's kind of a proxy war. And, and it does seem to me, in a sense, to <clears throat> excuse me, to, you know, uh, further this notion that this is going to take a long time to play itself out. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, yeah. how, how much are there any negotiations going on of any kind, of any yeah. seriousness at yeah. this point? You yeah, know? yeah. Uh, uh, those are all very good points and questions. John, let me just say this. Um, in terms of um, the duration of this conflict, um, nobody knows. My estimate is that in the next few months, you're going to see some movement towards some kind of, because uh, some kind of discussion on the peace table because I don't think the Russians will be able to sustain this type of conflict for a long time without drawing on resources that start raising eyebrows back home. And so I think Putin's gonna be in a situation where he's gonna to have to reach out. Uh, having said that, there are a number of peace uh, negotiation processes in place. You know, uh, President Macron of France has tried to get uh, something started and the Turks themselves have been very much engaged in getting the, trying to get the Ukrainians to the table and the Russians to the table on peace negotiations. And it was the Turks that actually helped negotiate uh, the release of grain, the, the start of shipment of grain from Ukraine. So there, are, there is a process uh, that's, uh, that's ongoing. In terms of your, conf uh, your um, uh, point about whether this is a proxy war, look, uh, I don't see it as a proxy war. I don't think anybody would regard it as a proxy war. I would have to caveat that and say there's obviously some benefit. If you could say there's a benefit in any war, there's no benefit. No one's condoning war. But the United States is able to learn probably a lot about the technology of Ukraine, of uh, Russian uh, equipment, their tactics and fighting. And at the same time, it's depleting the uh, Russian forces as well as uh, the um, their material. So there, there are costs, there are benefits to the Western side in terms of the, the war situation. But as a proxy war, I don't think so, because you have to look at the start of this. It was the United States that was strongly against getting this war started. I mean, we we threatened sanctions. We came talking about, you know, the, the dire consequences of sanctions. And uh, when the war started, we uh, we offered uh, Zelensky a ride out of the country, as they uh, for lack of a better term, as you recall, his famous line was, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition, you know. So uh, I don't think there was any desire for, obviously, no one wants war, but I don't think the United States states saw this as a way, you know, to get into a proxy war uh, with, uh, with Russia. At the same time, you have to realize that uh, for a proxy war to have been successful, you'd have to put all your forces in play as much as possible. And the West has been reluctant. Remember the big uh, debate over whether or not to provide air support to Ukraine. Uh, and when Poland wanted to provide the jets, and then we kind of balked on that, and that was pulled back. So while we are providing a lot of equipment to Ukraine, a lot of it is being provided uh, too late and, and too little. And so uh, it, uh, it's, all, it's almost in a situation where we're not providing enough for Ukraine to win the war, we're just providing enough for the war for them to defend themselves. Uh, so in that kind of situation, I would say it's way short of anything, uh, anything that one would consider a proxy war. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to suggest that this was something that the United States was spoiling for, so to speak. Oh, no, no, not but, at but all. That, no, but that it's that. sort of become that kind of situation. And I mean, one of the things, again, that struck me is the the degree to which, you know, NATO slash the United States were reluctant to, as you say, you know, provide air support to, you know, get involved in anything that might be regarded as a kind of aggressive posture. And similarly, you know, uh, Putin, I mean, there was a lot of concern. Uh, at the beginning about the Russians using atomic and other kinds of uh, weapons of mass destruction. And 
I don't know. It seems to me I, I don't pay the follow this as closely as you surely do. Um, but it seems to me that that kind of discussion has at least gone into abeyance. I don't know that people are no longer concerned about it. But I, I mean, there's always the concern, it seems to me, that if Putin is politically pushed into a corner in some way, that he feels like he can't afford you know, not to win this, uh, this adventure, uh, because it will mean the collapse of his political sport back home, then he might do something that could be, you know, disastrous. And of course, now everybody's focused on the Zaporizhia uh, nuclear plant and what what might happen there. So maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Sure. Yeah, I think one of the to go to the heart of your question, I think one of the issues is that the West uh, has kind of got itself into a situation where no one sees an exit. The West doesn't have an exit strategy, nor can it. And Ukraine doesn't have an exit strategy short of victory. And that's not going to be possible. The only one that uh, can have an exit strategy and who controls the narrative is Putin. As I mentioned earlier, uh, he's going to have to weigh the cost benefit analysis. And he's not there yet, although I think he's getting to that point uh, fairly, fairly soon. In terms of the tactical nuclear weapons, uh, early on in the conflict, uh, as you rightly pointed out, uh, Putin alluded to the possible use of uh, tactical nu- nuclear weapons if he felt threatened or if the West got involved or he, he was providing some kind of assistance to to Ukraine. I forget his exact language. I've been a little bit more skeptical about this, John, because uh, even though he is an authoritarian ruler, uh, when it comes to the use of nuclear weapons, I doubt that anyone sitting around him would be very open to that kind of suggestion. You know, ratcheting this up to a tactical nuclear weapon situation raises the bar considerably for the ruling circles in Moscow as well. And so I, I don't see Putin as being in a position where he can just snap his fingers and say, let's launch some nuclear weapons. I think the people around him would say, well, wait a minute, you know. This is getting a little bit out of hand. Uh, we're getting to the point where if we start doing this, we don't know what the response will be and what our next step will be. And so let's let's not go that way. So I think I think in certain ways his hands are are tied as well in in that respect, and he's limited to what he's doing right now. And that's why I think at the same time, as a result of that, uh, over the next few months, um, fairly soon, I I I hope. Uh, he'll be pushed into a position where he'll uh, be more than willing to sit down and have discussions with the Ukrainians. Well, I think I'll characterize that as an optimistic outlook on what's going to happen. And (laughs) I I don't mean it's unrealistic. I just mean it's optimistic. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. That's it for today's episode. I want to thank Ambassador Roman Popadiu for sharing both his experience as the U.S.-United States first ambassador to Ukraine and his insights into U.S.-Ukrainian relations in light of the Russian invasion and ongoing war. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Meryl Sovner for her production assistance, Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks very much for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. 